Uh, that's kind of it, really. So why don't I pray again, and then we will get into uh, this for this evening. So, Father, I'll just lift up this time to you now as we come to your word, and I pray, Lord, as we've prayed already, that you'd speak to us, Father, you'd minister to, to us, and that we'd hear from you tonight, Father, and that you'd change us by the power of your Holy Spirit to look more like Jesus, and that we'd live more fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got a Bible or a device, do flick it open to Luke chapter 18. Um, and I think I'll just start by reading the passage. So it's uh, uh, verses um, 1 to wherever it ends, verse 8. So let, let me uh, read this to you. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him night and day? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So there we go. And uh, we are kind of not in the middle of a series at the moment. So, so normally, as you know, we'll work through kind of a book of the Bible in turn, which means as we've just kind of done Genesis. And you will have known that we've basically done a lot of chapters in Genesis that nobody in their right mind would ever normally preach on, but we kind of had to because they were in the series, which is really good for us, in that, you know, because it challenges us with things that we never normally do. But as we're kind of out of series, it means we get to kind of just do a few things that are on the hearts of, I guess, you know, the people that are preaching. And so this is, a, a, I guess, a bit of the Bible that's really been on my heart for the last few months, and I just wanted to share some of, you, some of that with you guys this evening. And the reason that uh, this, this particular parable really struck me was, was partly from hanging around with a few students on campus. Um, and this is one of the favorite, my favorite parts of hanging around with students, is hanging around with students who are not um, from the UK, with international students who are Christians from other countries where they've experienced a really profound move of the Spirit or a really profound revival. And as you spend time alongside them, some of their passion and enthusiasm, just you can't help it, it kind of rubs off on you. And so they're always just fun people to hang around with. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them, uh, my friend Louise, she's from Brazil, and she was just telling me some of the stories of some of the things that's been happening in Brazil over the past few years. And she said... um, Actually, the last couple of years before university, she lived in Portugal. And she said during that two-year time frame, there were friends of hers back in Brazil who she would never have even dreamed of stepping into a church. And she was like, now I can't believe it. I look on Facebook and I see they're living their lives passionately for Jesus and they love him. And they're they're telling all their friends about him. It's incredible what God is doing in Brazil. And so uh, if you look at the statistics, which it's it's quite hard to do because they don't quote me on any of this because it's... It's probably wrong, but if you try and figure it out, it looks something like the evangelical population of Brazil was around 5% in the late 80s, and next year it is estimated that the evangelical population of Brazil will hit over 50%. Isn't that crazy? 
mental. And not only is it that churches are growing hugely in Brazil, but also society itself is being transformed as drug cartels and politicians and and landowners, as they come into the kingdom, they are bringing about a transformation that is affecting the whole of society and not just the church. And so I turn to my friend Louise and I say to her, well, how did it all start? Because that's the obvious question, right? I'm like, I'd love to see some of that happen in Lancaster. Wouldn't it be amazing to see some of what's happened in Brazil right here. And so I say to her, Louise, how did it all start? And she said, well, it started with hungry people coming together and persistently praying for a long time, for a really long time. And then eventually stuff started to happen as God broke through. Another example, my friend Shahab, who uh, Andy down here will know, remember Shahab? Absolute crazy guy. We, we go, I go around campus sometimes praying with Shahab, and I tentatively pray for someone, and then we finish praying, and then he launches into this poor person. He's like, let me tell you my story. I used to be a Muslim in Iran. Can you imagine what it must have cost me and convinced me to turn to Jesus? And then he just launches into telling him his testimony, because he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. So in, in Iran in the 1970s, there were a handful of Christians. Today, there are three million Christians So I said to Shahab, well, what happened? And he said the same thing. You know, over a long period of time, hungry people got together and started praying. And and also, many of them surrendered and sacrificed for the gospel with their lives. And that's how revival broke through. And, uh, and anyway, I've also been reading this book over the summer, and actually some of it, I've been reading it with all the other kind of ministry team leaders and a few other people in the church have read it as well. And it's called When God Breaks Out by this guy called Michael Green, and he researches all of the kind of revivals across history, times when God broke out in history, and he just kind of draws out of it what kind of happened. And so reading this book, it becomes very, very clear that the same things emerge in every single time that God ever broke out and when there was ever a revival. And that's, that, that is, you know, you look at the Hebridean revival, right? It starts the same way, hungry people coming together and praying. And you look at the Great Awakening, kind of the same thing, you know, hungry people coming together and praying. The Welsh revival, the same thing. You look at Azusa Street, it's the same thing. You look at the Reformation or the early church, and it's the same thing over and over again. Hungry people coming together and praying persistently until something happens. It's in every single revival in history that whenever God shows up and tips society on its head big time, it starts with hungry people coming together and praying, which is crazy, right? When you really think about it, it's absolutely mental that the God of the universe... As I prayed at the start, the God that flung stars into space, the God who's above everything, the God who sees all of space-time history, would listen to people and answer their prayers, even in the Outer Hebrides, in the middle of nowhere, like right on the outskirts of Scotland, two old ladies praying every night for revival, and God listens to them in Scotland. Can you believe it? It's crazy, isn't it? That, that he, he finds these two desperate old ladies praying for a revival to break out, and they keep praying, and they keep praying, and keep praying, and he listens to the prayers of these two women, and it changes that place forever. Doesn't that blow your mind? Sometimes I, 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 I kind of look at the church, not just this church, but I look at the church generally in this country, and I just kind of feel like we've become so flabby, haven't we? become so flabby. Like I, you know, I, I kind of look at the, des- the, the way in which people's desire for God is most often satisfied. And it, to me, it seems like people's desire for God is most often satisfied when they go to a conference. Okay, So my wife, Alicia, she came back from Cherish a few months ago. And I know lots of the other women also went to Cherish. 
brilliant conference. I heard lots of good things. I'm sure you had a great time. But I'm also looking at it like, are any of you really satisfied with those three days per year of going to that conference? Or are youth going to Soul Survivor? In, I think it's next week. Okay, I'm praying they have a brilliant time. I'm sure they'll love it. But really, is that, is that kind of it? That's when God breaks out with those few days in that conference with those kind of Christian celebrities and ultimate worship leaders and all the rest of it. That's the only time when God breaks out. And, and we all need those kind of times to, to be fed. And, you know, those conferences have immense value, don't they? But, but doesn't it ever occur to you, it occurs to me, that the main meal is, is, is right here, isn't it? We don't have to go to those big tent meetings and those big worship events to be, to be given something or, and spoon-fed our spirituality by someone else. Because the Holy Spirit isn't in that big worship meeting or isn't in that big conference or that mega church. And we kind of get into the mentality that we think that is the place where God is most present. And if we want to access him, we have to go to those particular worship leaders and speakers and mega churches and conferences. But it's not true. In fact, that's kind of like the, 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 the Old Testament worship system, isn't it? Thinking I have to go to the temple where I see the priest and he goes into the Holy of Holies on my behalf and he enters God's presence and, and makes sacrifices for me instead of... Instead, but that's not true anymore. The curtain has been ripped in two, isn't it? And, and what does Jesus say to the woman at the well? He says, the, time, the day is coming and has now come when you will no longer worship in the mountain or in the temple but in spirit and truth, right? The reality is you can at any moment switch your, your mind into gear and all of a sudden you can find yourself like Moses going up the mountain or like the priest going into the Holy of Holies and you can approach God yourself with all of your requests, with all of your desires, with all of your petitions, with everything that's on your heart and you can walk up to him and tell him and he will listen to you. He will let you approach him and walk into his, his presence and his holiness and he'll listen to you. He'll be attentive to you. He'll pay attention to what's on your heart and he will act in accordance to what it is that you bring to him. But the truth is, we don't do it, do we? Like I'll be the first to admit that, that you know, my, my prayer life is not what I want it to be. Think of uh, you know these prayer meetings we've been having on Thursday nights. You know I was at the one last Thursday and it was great. We had a brilliant time, but small numbers. You know there's few people that want to really come together and pray. And sure you might have other things on on a Thursday night, but I don't believe that was everybody who was kind of free and up for praying was there. It's hard, isn't it? And and, and I think the re- the truth be told is this: is that firstly. The reason why we don't pray is firstly because things are not desperate enough and secondly because we just assume that we're too capable by ourselves or at least we think we are. So another story and I told this story once on a morning service so you might have heard this story before but I was blown away by it so I think I can tell it again and it's fine. Uh, And that's the story of, of another Iranian Christian I met a little while ago and she was telling me her testimony and she said she came to the UK as a refugee and a Muslim and uh, she was finding life really difficult. She didn't speak English. She was having a baby. And you can imagine, and she was separated from her husband who was still in Iran. So you can imagine how difficult life was for her. And, and then she has this dream where she's, for some reason, in high heels, walking up a hill, carrying all of these bags. And then someone starts taking the bags off her and then walks up to the top of the hill with the bags. And she looks at the top of the hill and it's Jesus on the cross with all of her bags. And then she starts hearing this voice in her head. 
And she writes down everything that it's saying, and then she takes it and she shows it to someone else, and, and she says, do you know what this is? And they say, yeah, it's Psalm 121. <laughs> She'd never read the Bible before or even touched the Bible, seen the Bible in the whole of her life. So anyway, she starts going to church, uh, decides she wants to get baptized, and she phones up her dad and says, you know, says to her father, you know, I'm going to get baptized. I decided to become Christian. She's really excited about it. And her dad just says to her on the phone, you're dead to me. He puts down the phone, never speaks to her again, and he reports her to the Iranian authorities. And in Iran, it's punishable by death to convert from Islam to Christianity. And so anyway, she she gets baptized, and the minister of the church says to her, uh, well, whatever you do, don't put the photos on Facebook, because if for any reason you ever went back to Iran, they'd use it as evidence against you. And so what does she do? She puts all the photos on Facebook. And... Do you know, we just don't know what it is like to count that kind of cost, do we, in our Christian lives? We have no idea what it's like to count that kind of cost. And that is why we do not pray like they pray in Iran. That's why we don't go up the mountain ourselves, but we're too lazy to let someone else do it for us, where we, we, we let the Christian celebrity access the Holy Spirit on our behalf and then minister to us. Why we don't do it ourselves? Because we've, we've never faced that kind of thing. You know, our Christianity is basically often some kind of middle-class hobby. It's not the do-or-die, fight-to-the-death struggle like it is for those believers in Iran. That's why we don't pray like they pray. Like, when you're desperate for God to act because otherwise your church is going to get smashed to pieces and burnt to the ground or, or your friend that just became a Christian is going to get hung, then you pray like you really mean it. Then your prayer meetings aren't made up of like 10 people and awkward silences and someone asking if we can pray for Mr. McGregor's cat who went missing last Thursday and we've not seen him since. Can we pray? You know, we, don't, we look stupid compared to the church in Iran, don't we? Because we just don't pray like they pray. And secondly, not only are things not as desperate, but we're also pretty capable. Like we've got this technology and and musicians and all these books and all these bible colleges like what on earth do we need God's help for right like if I wanted to put on a really good Christian meeting and 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 for everybody to come and and feel like they got something and go away feeling warm and fuzzy then I could quite easily send a few emails message a few people find a worship leader find a speaker find a venue find a smoke machine and everybody would have a great time and and I could do all of that without having to pray even once like, it's easy. It's easy. But when you're in Brazil and you're trying to like start a church in a favela with like a group of people who have been displaced by a drugs cartel and you've got no budget, no building, no staff team, no instruments, no PA system, no training, then you don't depend on any of that kind of stuff. You pray because you've got nothing else. And guess which kind of church grows quicker? The church with all the tech, the talent, and the stuff, or the church that prays. Like, no prizes for guessing who. So we're just too complacent because we can do it all ourselves. Like, me included, okay? But the truth is this, is that as the church, we are finding ourselves more and more at the margins. We are fast getting to the point where we cannot depend on the same stuff anymore. And for some of you guys, you will have been around the church for long enough to have seen the statistics for yourself and the decline. Yes, we know that there are less young people, there are less millennials, there are less kids in church today than there has been for a long time. Like, we are being pushed to the margins, And so in many ways, we have got to start embracing Luke 18. 
this passage that I read out at the start. We've got to start embracing this kind of theology, this kind of thinking, and this kind of way in life, the way of life of the desperate widow. And the, the kind of teaching that Jesus gives us here in this parable, it's going to be vital for our health as the church as we move forward. We've got to completely embrace it. Uh, and, 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 and not just in terms of persistent prayer, but also in identifying ourselves with the desperate widow in saying, actually, we understand that we are, in fact, like her. Because when we start to identify with her, that is when we will start to persistently pray when we understand what it means to be desperate, like she's desperate. And Jesus says to his disciples that he tells them this parable for their encouragement so that they would always pray and not give up. And so that is true for us tonight. This parable is here for you tonight to encourage you to always pray and not give up. So if there's one thing to take away from tonight is to be encouraged to always pray and never give up. Because just like it was for the disciples, things are about to get a lot harder for them in the next few months. And the same is true for us. So, how does it go? Well, we see in the parable there's two main characters. Have a look at verse 2. It should be on the screen. It says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And so we see these two characters, and they are the total opposite, the widow and the judge. And uh, we know, don't we, that in the first century, being a, a widowed woman was just about the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Right? You'd have no rights. You'd have no real way to make money except for perhaps prostitution. You'd have no value in society. And there's no welfare state. There's no NHS. There's no universal credit, as kind of flawed as that system is. None of that stuff is there. She'd be left begging on the streets. She'd have been poor, penniless, probably not going to live much longer regardless of her age. And then on the other hand, there's the judge. And the judge is a man in a society where that means everything. And he's rich and he's powerful. He has a well-respected job. He decides people's fate. In fact, in his world, he is God. And it seems like Well, we know from the passage that something has happened to this widow. We don't know what, uh, but somebody has done her an injustice. And the widow has gone to the judge in order to find a solution for the injustice that has been done to her. Whatever it is that she's facing, she wants this guy to fix her problem. And so he goes to the judge, but Jesus says the judge, he doesn't care about people and he doesn't fear God. In his world, he is God and he doesn't have to listen to this widow and so he doesn't, he ignores her. But the widow, and this is important, she, she knows that what's happened isn't just, and she isn't satisfied, and she's hungry for what is right, and so she keeps on going back, and going back, and going back. It says it in verse 3, she keeps coming back, and coming back, and coming back, over, and over, and over, and over again, and she wears this guy down, and then eventually, it says, verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterwards he said, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then after he tells the story, Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says, well, how much more will God who is just give justice to those who cry out to him day and night? So for those of you who keep with your continual coming to God, he will not delay, but he will give justice to them 
speedily. He'll give justice to them speedily. See that in verse 8. Quickly. He'll do it quickly. So the message is really clear. When you pray, when you ask God for stuff, when you cry out to him for justice, he will deliver. Do you have faith to believe that that is actually true? Well, it is. It's in the Bible, which blows your mind, right? That when you can actually change the course of history by crying out to God, to crying out to the creator of the universe, and he will listen to you. And not only will he listen to you, but he will act speedily. Okay? Important, though, to realize a few things. You know, reading the whole of the Bible in its context, and that is, you know, firstly, God isn't going to work outside of the bounds of his character and his mission and his will. So you might think it's an injustice that your neighbor just got a brand new car. Maybe it's quite a nice car. It could be a Porsche. And you're looking at it thinking, this doesn't seem just. It's quite unfair that, uh, that he's got this new car. And so you think, oh, I'll pray for it, okay? Because that's an injustice. And, and you think, well, you know, if I keep praying, I'll keep praying. Well, that might not be the kind of justice that God has on his heart, okay? I mean, I mean, it's worth a go because God is incredibly gracious and answers ridiculous prayers, so you never know. But, but there is, on the other hand, a kind of justice that we know that God is really into. And you see it on the heart of Jesus, right? He loves the lost. He loves the poor and the sick and the lame and the people that are rejected in society, those that don't know uh, God their Father. Those are the people that he has uh, uh, compassion on. And so you pray for justice on those issues and you pray and pray and pray and pray with faith that he'll listen to you and believe. And you say, you know, Father, I know what you're like. I know what your character is. I know the things that you care about. Have you seen what's going on down here? Will you not come and act and have justice in the situation? and you keep praying into that and you'll see him move supernaturally and it will blow your mind now some of you you're like okay I, I, I saw someone that was sick once and I, and I tried praying for them and they didn't get healed and I saw an injustice I saw someone that wasn't, Christ, wasn't a Christian I tried praying for them and, and nothing seemed to happen and uh, maybe you used to pray a lot you used to pray for people all the time and you, you had that kind of real persistence in praying over and over and over again but over time it waned because you just felt like you never really saw anything happen well one of the books I read over the summer was John Wimber's Power Evangelism. I'd recommend it. It's a great book. And he said in that book that when people used to come up to him and say, uh, I tried praying for healing for somebody and nothing happened, what he would say to them was, go away and pray for a thousand people and then come back and tell me if it still doesn't work. Because he knew that with persistence they would see God start to move. And in fact, he said that he, when he first felt convicted to start to pray for healing for people, he would do it every single Sunday. And he did it every single Sunday for two years and never saw anything happen. Nobody got healed. And it was only after that period of praying every... Can you imagine how humiliating that is as the pastor of the church, praying for healing for somebody every single Sunday for two years, seeing nothing happen, but he kept going, and then eventually God broke through. And then some of you will know the kind of rest of story of his, his, his healing ministry that went on for many years. So if you're not sure that this is actually true or it actually works and you don't feel like you have the faith to really exercise it, then the two things that I think you need to see that are in the passage is that like the widow, you have to be desperate and you have to be persistent. You have to be desperate to see God's righteousness reign in every area of society and for his kingdom to rule the land, right? You've got to be like David, who meditated on the law day and night, and it was said, it, the Bible says it was like honey to his lips. He knew how good God was, and he was desperate for more of him, okay? 
more of him in retail and commerce, more of him in social services, more of him in industry, more of him in healthcare, more of him in frontline emergency services, more of him in the arts. Not just, God, I'm hungry for you on a Sunday morning, but God, I'm hungry for you in every single area of society, in every single part of the world. I want to see your justice. I want to see your righteousness. I want to see your holiness rule and reign in this place because when we have that kind of desperation, it's because we understand that when God breaks out in society, it changes things, right? It was the breaking out of God that, that um, caused the abolition of slavery in this country. It was the breaking out of God that started healthcare. It was the breaking out of God that started education as we know it. It was the breaking out of God that started modern day science, believe it or not. Like imagine, just imagine for a moment, if in Lancaster it was the breaking out of God that healed the division caused by Brexit. Imagine if in Lancaster it was the breaking out of God that eradicated sex trafficking in our city. Imagine if in Lancaster it was the breaking out of God that took homeless people off the street and put food on people's tables. Imagine if it was the breaking out of God that started to reverse the effects of climate change as we start to take it seriously. Just imagine, imagine what it would look like to see God's righteousness rule and reign in our city and in our lives and as you imagine it, start to become desperate for it. Desperate for it. Don't you, don't, you, don't you have a desperation to see God breaking out in that way once again as he once did in all those revivals in history? Don't you want to see it today? Like in Brazil, like in Iran, why not here and now? Like, and not just seeing people come to faith, that's a given. Not just seeing miracles and healing, that's a given. But seeing society itself start to get healed on a kind of grassroots level where as people come to faith in Jesus, they start living it out in their everyday lives until we get to the point where you don't even have to lock your front door anymore because everybody in your neighborhood has been saved to Jesus and they're living for him. Wouldn't you you love it if the church had that kind of impact? Just imagine Well, guess what? If it's in accordance with God's character, with his mission, with his will, then pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And don't take no to an answer for an answer until we start to see it come. But I think the trouble for lots of us is that it's almost like we're widows that don't actually know that we're widows, okay? We're walking around as if we think everything is basically fine and everything is okay. You know, on a Sunday morning, this place is pretty full. And actually, there's quite a few people, a couple of months at the moment, it seems to be coming to faith, which is brilliant. It's wonderful. We celebrate that. But, but okay, it kind of feels like we're moving in the right direction, and we are. But if, if you even think that we've achieved even 1% of what the impact of the gospel might be on Lancaster then you're gravely mistaken. There's so much more. There's so much more. Everything is not okay, isn't it? Maybe the problem is you've never imagined how good it could be. Like, let me just lead you on an exercise for a minute. Let's take the Ten Commandments, I guess, which is the kind of rules that might define the kingdom, if we were to put it that way. And you start to imagine the psychological, the economic, the sociological implications of what it would be like if everybody followed the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden, you're like, now I understand how David meditated on the Lord day and night. I always thought he was a massive geek. And, and now I get it. Because, because imagine a world in which it is true that everybody perfectly follows do not steal. There'd be no padlocks on doors. There'd be no security on banks. 
Imagine, and, th- and then imagine not only the lack of all that security of not needing it, not needing to lock your front door, but also imagine if we took all of the metal and all of those locks and all of those safes and all of those steel front doors and we piled it into a big pile and then we took all of the time that was spent engineering all that security by talented people. We took the two things put them together. This is how my mind works. Imagine the size of the theme park we could have built instead, right? That's the kingdom of God. Imagine, do not covet. Imagine a world where nobody ever felt in need of something new, where everybody was already satisfied with what they already had, like products would be made to last and not be replaced every five minutes. Adverts would be straightforward and and, and tell the truth and not manipulative. And and do you imagine the impact on mental health if everybody was already satisfied with the body image that they already had instead of coveting a different one? Like that's the kingdom of God. Or imagine the effect on families if everybody perfectly followed do not commit adultery or, or the way that you could just trust anybody, anywhere, if everybody perfectly followed do not bear false witness. Like the feeling of safety and of security, the sense of calmness and of peace, like our police stations and hospitals would be gathering dust. And, w- and one day we will experience that in the new creation, right? We will live in that place one day fully and finally but it's the kingdom of now and not yet isn't it and we pray father manifest more of that now father please manifest more of that now I want to see it and and make habit of imagining it make habit of meditating it and tasting it like David did because as you do that it will make you more desperate for it and it will make you want to cry out to God and just say your kingdom come father your kingdom come, I want to see it come. So we've got to let ourselves become like that desperate widow who prays and prays and prays with persistence until it starts to happen. And the mind-blowing crazy thing is, is that as we do that, God will listen to us. And so practically, uh, and, uh, well, yeah, and sorry, part of the reason why he'll listen to us is not that just, as Faze already said this, he's not just as just judge, but he's also our father, and he cares about us. And so one of the ways in which I just encourage you to do this is like he's a father, okay? Pray specifically and pray often. So Michael Green, who I was talking about earlier, who wrote that book, one of the things um, that he used to do when I, I sort of knew him at the end of his life because he spoke at a mission in Lancaster. And when you hung around with him, one of the things that he would always do in the middle of a conversation, he would, t- he would just interrupt the conversation and start praying as if it was like, as if there was a third person there, as if, the, as if God was standing there with us. He would just kind of break the conversation and start praying. I don't think I've ever met anybody else who seems to ever do that. It's brilliant. Pray specifically and often for small things. They're all built towards that big picture of the kingdom because as we imagine the scale of it, it can be like, well, where do I even start praying for that? And it's like, you imagine it like it's a big jigsaw puzzle and we all have individual pieces in front of us that we can be praying for and putting into place in order to build the big picture. And there might be small things, but pray for them. So like, you know, the other day, I, my parents moved up to Lancaster about a year ago and uh, the other day I was praying for them and uh, I was just praying specifically, okay, a very small specific thing in the big building of that kingdom. I, p- I just prayed that, that my mum and dad would make friends with somebody that was a Christian because they don't know Jesus. 
And uh, anyway, I was praying for it, and then about half an hour later, my mum picked me up and dropped me to work, because my mum still takes me to work. And, uh, <laughs> and we were sat in the car and uh, talking, and my mum turns around to me, and she says, oh, uh, I, met, I found out the other day that two of my friends, they're working for this thing called Street Pastors in Lancaster. Have you heard of it? And I was like, you are joking me. That's amazing. It was like, God, God you, you, you heard me, and you listened to me. You know, and, and he does. And, and they might be, there's a very small thing, but do you see, we pray specifically and often for those little tiny things that all build towards the big picture. And we pray with faith and confidence out of a place of desperation over and over and over and over again until we see stuff start to happen. And, I, you know, I don't know whether we will actually genuinely ever see revival ever again. Like the way that Mark Green ends the book, and I think this is really helpful, he says, We cannot predict when God will next break in in revival. It might not be in our generation. I'd long for it to be, but it might be in our children's generation or our children's 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 generation before we see it again. But the one thing that we do know is that in every single time that God broke out in history, in every single time that there was revival, people were praying with persistence and desperation. And it never happened when people weren't. And so if we are those people... Who knows what we'll start to see happen. Let's have the band back up and I'll just tell you one more story to finish, which was just, just to encourage you really, which was a few years ago, I was doing a year out um, uh, doing Relay. Some of you will have known Relay because we've had a few Relay workers in the church. And I was doing Relay and I had this uh, super old car. It was a Golf GTI. I thought it was really cool at the time. It had only done 190,000 miles. So it was really new. And um, <laughs> the starter motor went on the car. And uh, for a while, because I had no money at all, okay, so what I would do is I would open the car door and I'd push it down the street as fast as I could. And then I'd jump in the front seat, slam it into gear, drop the clutch, turn the key. I'd start the engine and then drive off. And I did that for a little bit. And then on campus, I'd park it at the top of a hill and then I'd roll out the car parking space and uh, do the same thing again. And then, and then it snowed and I couldn't do it in the snow because it, for one thing it was dangerous. And for another thing, you couldn't get the traction on the wheels to jump start it. And so I was just praying. I was like, God, you know, you see what I'm doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm doing this work trying to build your kingdom and I, and I want to see it come on campus. And Father, you know that I need this car because I lived in the middle of nowhere. There were no buses. You know, I was like, you know that I need my Golf GTI to drive onto campus. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do. didn't have any money. So I thought I'll book it in in faith like they do in the books and the, you know, when you read about it. I'll book it in in faith that God will provide the money in a week's time. So I booked it in, was praying about it. And uh, I jump-start the car and uh, drive it to the garage a week later. I'd been checking my bank balance, still no money. been trying the engine, still wasn't working. And I park it outside the garage and then leaving it running. The mechanic drives it onto the ramp and he lifts it um, onto the top of the ramp, turns the engine off with a key and then turns it again and it starts first time. And I'd been trying everything to try and fix it myself. Nothing seemed to work. I was on YouTube, you know, hit the starter mate with a hammer and all the rest of it. I'd done, I'd done that. And then he turns it off again, turns it on again, starts again. He does it like 10 times and it starts every single time. He takes the car down off the ramp, drives it off, and he's like, well, there's nothing wrong with it. You may as well drive it home and I can't charge you anything. So I get back in the car. <laughs> it was fine ever since. And as I get back in the car, my eyes just fill with tears. I'm like, this is amazing. Like the God of the universe... Like he could build this thing, his kingdom, without us, totally without. He doesn't need us at all, let alone does he need a, a Golf GTI with 190,000 miles on the clock. 
that he listens to us and he's attentive to us and he cares about us. And so I don't know whether we'll ever really see what they've seen in Iran and Brazil. I pray that we do. But one thing that I do know is that we'll get a heck of a lot further if we pray with persistence and desperation for his kingdom to come. And not only that, but it's an absolute thrill and a joy as we see him use us on the way. Shall we stand? Father, I just pray that you make us a people of faith and belief. That, Father, I just pray now for any kind of sense of skepticism and pessimism, Father, that I know we all experience the time. Father, I just pray that you, you help that to melt away and instead we are filled with a childlike faith that sees you are a good God, you are a father, you are a just judge. And as we come to you with our petitions and requests, Father, we praise you that you listen to us. And so, Lord, I lift up these guys here tonight, Lord, and I pray your Holy Spirit would just bless them now, that, Father, you'd fill them with a sense of optimism and a sense of belief and a sense of your power, Lord, that you want to change this place and this city. And I pray, Lord, that you'd make us a people of prayer, a people who are desperate, and the people who are persistent. So Lord, we just invite you now as we sing, Lord, to minister amongst us, to speak to us, Lord. I pray you just encourage us and that we just enjoy this time now as we worship you. Amen.